closing my eyes and taking a deep breath and thinking about all the generations of people that have lived, worked, played, loved on these lands of the Woiwurrung and Bonrung people. Acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, that the, we live on stolen lands and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and the respects of all those on the Wednesday breakfast team. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. This is Sonia Rendawa back for Wednesday breakfast. We're still on summer programming this week, so it will be a show that's mainly um, re- things that we've been listening to the best of the last year. But we will be having an interview at eight o'clock with Associate Professor Nikki Carms from the from Monash University, and they're going to be talking to us about a survey that they did in New South Wales looking at the safety of public places for women and gender diverse people. So stay tuned for that around eight o'clock. To begin with, we're starting today's breakfast program with an article called Palestinians and Zapatistas, Extremes That Come Together in the Fight Against Humanity. This piece was originally published in Spanish in the internet journal De Apologies for my pronunciation here. De Informonon Peridismo de Abeo, translated as Let's Inform Ourselves, Journalism from Below, a global non-profit communication space operated by a group of independent journalists. The English translation was done by the Chiapas Support Committee, which is a grassroots collective based in Oakland, California, and serves as a centre for education and information about the Chiapas, the Zapatista communities, and Mexico. And now the article. I'm afraid I'll be reading this, so bear with me. Palestinian Genocide in Gaza, Moral Compass of Humanity. For this article, we will take as a basis the textual words chosen from particularly significant moments of Palestinian and Zapatista protagonists about their struggles, challenges and sufferings, since they seem to us in this case stronger and more effective than any other reflection. Why have the Pope and religious leaders of Judaism, Islam and other traditions not yet gone to place their body in Gaza alongside Palestinian families? It is a brutal snapshot of the level of growing inhumanity that affects our species. It shows the lack of a living incarnation with the victims on the part of the leaders of religious traditions, unlike their people and faithful believers who have carried out numerous acts of solidarity, and also of the helplessness with little voice in key decisions and the lack of challenges in the most radical non-violent action of the people of God in those religious traditions where we are not capable of making, as the Zapatistas would say, the authorities lead by obeying the people and do what the sacred words of their texts say unambiguously, put their bodies next to the victims until they give their lives for them. Regarding the impossibility of risking non-violent actions that oblige our religious hierarchs to fulfil their duty, a passage from the Gospel comes to mind, 
where relatives of a sick person, seriously ill, such that he could not go to Jesus Christ in his public healing meetings to be cured, had to take him up to the roof of a house where Jesus was. Then they lowered him through the roof so that he could see him, so that Jesus could see him and cure him, which is what happens in the story. It seems to me, in all ignorance and simplicity, but also with audacity and humility, that this evangelical story could give us a clue about how we should act non-violently so that the Pope and other religious hierarchs land, yes or yes, in Gaza, even if it had to be removing rubble. Father Donald Hessler, whom I have cited more than once in this medium, as an example of non-violence, used to ask people to question the type of faith they had in their lives. Where do you want to die, in bed or on the cross? It is the question that should be asked at least to the Pope and the Christian religious heads now regarding this genocide. In the only passage of the Gospel where Jesus refers to the Last Judgment, something that goes beyond any religious belief, it seems to me, he calls himself Son of Man, not of God, and clearly indicates what the measure will be with which our life will be measured. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. I was imprisoned, naked. I was bombarded. As we have said, it is not about seeking any form of gratuitous martyrdom, but about embodying the word of God and the will of the people suffering from him, which is the only thing that justifies exercising that religious power. For a few days now, a video has been circulating on the networks about a homily, Christ under the rubble, by the Palestinian Lutheran pastor Muntha Isaac, made in Bethlehem the day before Christmas, which seems to me to be very strong, profound and clear regarding this issue and the current emergency of humanity with which we are in full harmony since our previous, which the writer is in full harmony since their previous articles. The, the pastor begins by saying that Gaza as we knew it no longer exists. This is annihilation. It is a genocide. The world watches. The churches watch. The people of Gaza send live images of their own execution. We are tormented by the silence of the world. Leaders of the so-called free world are lining up to give the green light to the genocide of a captive population. And he adds, if you are afraid to call it genocide, it is your responsibility. It is a sin and it is darkness that you voluntarily welcome. This political sphere is complemented by another, which is the cover-up of theological protection by Western churches. In South Africa, the concept of state theology was created, theological justification of the status quo of racism, capitalism and totalitarianism. In Palestine, to quote, we confront the theology of the empire that masks oppression under the cloak of divine decrees. It speaks of a land without people. It divides people between them and us. It dehumanizes and demonizes, calls to empty Gaza, go to Egypt, Jordan, to the sea. And he continues to question the theology of the empire, asking, how does the murder of 9,000 Palestinian boys and girls, though it's of course much higher than that now, amount to self-defense? How is the displacement of 1.9 million people, the murder of more than 24,000 now, plus an excess of 7,000 people missing under the rubble of bombed buildings of these Palestinians, how is that self-defense? They transform the colonizer into a victim and the colonized into the aggressor. And he adds that it is evident that the world does not see us as equals. If 100 Palestinians had to be killed to hunt down a Hamas militant, then go ahead. They don't see us as humans 
In the eyes of God, no one can take away our humanity. Pastor Munther says that the genocide in Gaza has become the moral compass of the world today, of the current moral state of humanity. And he continues to reflect self-critically, if you are not horrified by what is happening in Gaza, there is something wrong with your humanity. If as Christians we are not outraged by genocide and the use of the Bible to justify it, our Christian witness is distorted. He then adds that we are outraged by the complicity of the churches. Let's be clear, silence is complicity. An empty call for peace without demanding a ceasefire, an end to the occupation, and superficial empathy without direct action. All of this is complicity. He also wonders, remembering how Jesus was displaced by the empire and had to flee to Egypt, just like the Palestinians today, what Jesus exclaimed with great pain on the cross, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he answers that through the support of people nearby, they know that God has not abandoned them. He is among the rubble there, vulnerable, displaced, refugee. That is precisely where the incarnation is. We see it in every murdered boy and girl, in every displaced family wandering around in despair without a home. Finally, the pastor concludes with a message to the world. This genocide must stop now. And he adds that the Palestinians, as they have always done, will rise up and continue fighting. However, the moral problem will lie with the rest of us who may have been complicit in our silence. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, where was I? when Gaza was passing through a genocide. The resistance and permanent moral and material strength in their bodies to fight against inhumanity and injustice deeply unites the Palestinian people with the Zapatistas. This article was recently published in the internet journal De Informonones, again apologies for my pronunciation, Periodisma de Abeo, translated as Let's Inform Ourselves, Journalism from Below, a global non-profit communication space operated by a group of independent journalists. This article looks at the ongoing occupation of Palestine and the brutal suppression of its inhabitants from a Christian perspective, as well as the, from the perspective of the Zapatistas, the anarchist liberation movement of the indigenous people of Chiapas in Mexico. You'll be able to find the link to this piece in our podcast notes once the show's over. I'm now going to go to a song. We're now going to go to a song. Um, it was It's a song released by a popular Egyptian band called Cairo Key and is called Tel Kadia. That's a different matter. The song was released on the band's official YouTube channel last month, expressing solidarity with the Palestinian cause and highlighting the West's double standards that ignore the plight of the Palestinians. The lyrics say... How can you be a white angel? Your consciousness remains a half-consciousness. They continue, you do justice to some freedom movements while you destroy other liberation movements. You distribute your kindness and compassion to the murdered according to their nationalities. The song also questions the credibility of those who claim to be angelic or noble while turning a blind eye to the principles of justice and equality. Let's have a listen to this beautiful song. ينقص في سلاحف بحري يقتل حيوانات بشري تلك 
القدير وتلك قدير كيف تكون ملاكا أبيض يبقى ضميرك نص ضمير تنصف حركات الحرية وتنصف حركات التحرير وتوزع عطفك وحنانك عالمقتول حسب الجنسية وتلك قضية وتلك قضية كيف تكون إنسانا راق ومطابق للاشتراطات كل كلامة لابس واقي كل الشجرات بتقول عبواب الحارس جنب الجيش بيد مدارس وما بتفش نفسك لابس دم تقول الكل ضحية وتلك قضية وتلك قضية كيف أصدق هذا العالم لما بيحكي عن الإنسان شايف أم بتبكي ضناط علشان مات في الغار جعان ويساوي المتول بالهاتف بشرف ونزاه وحياته وتلك قضيه وتلك قضيه كيف انام قرير العين واضع سدادت اذنين والعيلة المدفونة في بيتها ممنوع حد يخش يغتر وكأن الأرض اللي فوقيهم مش تبع الكرة الأرضية وتلك قضية وتلك قضية كيف تعيش في سجن واسع زنازين ومن نار ورماد وتقوم من تحت الأنقاض تتشعل في راب تجمع أشلاك وتاتي وتوري الدنيا الكذابة كيف يسير قانون الغاب من أين طريق الحرية ومن أين توتا الدباب مش فرق العالم يتكلم موت حر وما تعيش مسلم تلي مجيل ورا جيل يتعلم كيف يعيش ويموت لقضية بالنادي على علشان يستنكر ويهدين 
Hi there, it's busy homosexual and community darling Dean R. Curie and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 855 AM. Keep Radical Radio alive. Community Radio is everything and I love it. Three CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on Community Radio is governed by the Community Radio Codes of Practice. The Codes of Practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website, Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. So we just listened to Tek Kadea, That's a Different Matter, by popular Egyptian band Cairo Key. The song's lyrics were written by one of Egypt's best young, best known young poets, Mustafa Ibrahim. Now, I'm going to take you back to an incredible place, event that took place in Nam or Melbourne, on the 26th of June in 2021, in which black and Palestinian poets, artists and activists came together for a special evening of poetry, performances and discussions. On this show, Salam rebroadcast this event. So we're now going to listen to Sama Sabawi's poems. And you can listen to this um, to the Salam show every Sunday from between 4 and 6 p.m. if you want more of this sort of material. Samah clearly needs no introduction, <laughs> but I'm going to introduce her anyway. Um, Samah is an author, playwright, scholar, commentator and poet who wages what she calls beautiful resistance through her art and work. She's a recipient of multiple awards, both nationally and internationally. Her theatre credits include the critically acclaimed plays Tales of a City by the Sea and Them. And we should be looking out for Them, yes, which is um, touring. 28th of July, Arts Centre Melbourne, be there for Them. Um, she's also co-edited, um, the co-editor of Double Explosure, 
plays of the Jewish and Palestinian diasporas and the winner of the Patrick O'Neill Award and co-author of I Remember My Name, um, edited by Vasey Vlasner, which was the winner of the Palestine, Palestine Book Award. She is the host of the webinar podcast series, The Book Room. Her poems are published in magazines and books, including West End Presses with Our Eyes Wide Open and Just World Books, Gaza Unsilenced. Her essays and op-ed pieces appear in various media outlets, including The Australian, Al Jazeera, Al Ahram, The Globe and Mail, The Age, and The Sydney Morning Herald. Samar received a Doctor of Philosophy from Victoria University for her thesis titled Inheriting Exile, Transgenerational Trauma and the Palestinian Australian Identity. What Samar has not done is not worth doing. Welcome. So good to be here and to see everyone, uh, even with your faces behind the masks. It's great. Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you for the organizers. Thank you, Janine and Sarah, for dreaming this up. And it's a real honor for me to be doing this with my co-poets today. So thank you. I like to always um, begin with my own um, acknowledgement to country. I acknowledge the original owners of the land we live upon and the original owners of the land where I come from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Palestinian people under occupation. And to pay my respect to our elders, past and present, who safeguard our history, the Hakawatis and weavers of Dreamtime stories forever embedded in our memory. And I'd like to express my outrage for black children in incarceration and for Palestinian children in arbitrary detention and for families pulled apart and fragmented by the occupation and to acknowledge the traditional women of our lands those who carve life from the sacred earth and breathe into it indigenous pride, and those who give birth at the checkpoints and on the roadside, and to acknowledge the men who still stand dignified, their heads held high, unbent by the oppression. And may I express my admiration for those of you resisting with us the horrors of settler colonies and those who march with us for equality beyond the rhetorical apology, the meaningless sorry, and the dazzling facade of Western civility. I come from colonized land. I stand on colonized land. And here I pay my respect to all freedom fighters, past and present. Palestine will be free, and this land will always be Aboriginal. My first uh, poem that I'm going to read today, I'm going to regret reading it tomorrow, because it's new. I started writing it two days ago, so it hasn't actually gone through the process. Um, but I thought I'd try it out anyway, because I'm sick of my older poems. Uh, so this one kind of um, was in reaction to, uh, I don't know if you watched on the news a few weeks ago, some artist in Italy sold an empty space as an installation art for a fortune. 
and it made me reflect on um, the idea of art, um, expensive art and white privilege and what it means to me as an artist. I admit it. Okay, I admit it. I am jealous. I can't write a column about a dress or some gossip-worthy actress or sell you splashed paint on canvas and call it art. I just can't play the part. I walk out on more theaters than I stay in, disturbed by all the money that's thrown on navel-gazing. It literally does my head in. Surely there is more than this. I clinch my fist, I raise my voice, I hold my placard high, and I shout, I'm here in this installation, in this theatrical production, in this protest. Art is all around me, on the walls of the city, on the faces of the homeless, in the smiles of the hungry. Art is all around you, too, if only you would open your eyes and see. I clench my fist, I raise my voice, I hold my placard high and I shout from the river to the sea, black lives matter, Palestine will be free, always was, always will be, end deaths in custody, Aboriginal land never ceded, save our humanity, global climate action now, save the birthing trees, life outside the exclusive white platforms. It is messy. It is terrible, actually. It's unfair. It's brutal. But it's beautiful. And it's real. At least, that's what it is for me. And while somewhere in Italy, an artist just sold an empty space for a fortune to protest some societal norm, millions will sleep on the streets, no space reserved for them. Can you understand the venom of capitalism and broken dreams? I admit it. I admit it. I am jealous. I wish I knew less. I wish I can splash blue on canvas and call it sky. I wish I could write a, a poem about a flower or a column about dressing for power or a novel about a love affair. I wish I could live without a care. Find an ocean of apathy and dump in it all this stupid empathy. I wish I could. I really do. I wish I could, but I can't. I am bound to this agony. My heart won't let me. And the color of my skin, it will never set me free. So, uh, <clears throat> thank you. So that's an okay one. I should keep polishing. <laughs> So um, my third poem that I wanted to share is one I wrote um, last year. Uh, the, the UN had predicted that Gaza would be unlivable by the year 2020. 2020 came and then came 2021, and the people of Gaza just kept on living, and life goes on for them. And so um, I wrote this poem, I imagined... Uh, the people of Gaza responding by declaring that life beyond livability, which is the word the UN used, was inevitable. They don't have a choice. I named this uh, the Song of the Besieged. The UN said Gaza was unlivable, but life 
beyond livability in Gaza is inevitable, like the rainfall and the winter storms. Life inside the walls, it's ferocious, like dandelions. It grows, it powers through like inexorable love, like an irresistible kiss, like the birthing of new life beyond the statistics of death. Life beyond livability in Gaza is inevitable, like the sunrise, predictable, like the movement of the tides, invincible, like flowers in the desert, unassailable, like a smile on the lips of the beloved, unequivocal, like a word that splits a bullet in halves, indomitable, like a revolutionary march, unstoppable, like the earth's rotation, formidable, like a fist in the face of occupation, undeniable, like destiny, like freedom from tyranny, like justice for the refugees. So listen carefully. Two million captive hearts are beating off rhythm. There is no harmony beyond livability, only the inevitable. Beware the inevitable. We're going to stray away from Palestine now. Um, we don't really stray away from Palestine, but this next poem I wrote in response to uh, Saudi Arabia's bombing of Yemen, which um, created the world's largest humanitarian crisis, according to the United Nations Human Rights Groups. This year, it is expected that two million children will die of starvation in Yemen. Saudi Arabia, of course, hails itself as a country of God and religion. The poem is called Sacrilegious. I'll trade you a mosque for a piece of shelter, a holy rock for a home with a wall, a prayer mat for a field with trees, a sacred book for a school demolished by your barbarian armies. I'll trade you the soil the prophets walked on for clean water and medicine. I'll trade you five prayers a day for one night without terror, without drones in the sky and tanks in the horizon. I'll trade you the promise of paradise, the rivers of milk, and honey for just a handful of money to feed the hungry. I'll trade you eternal heaven for a baby's breath in Yemen. You've just been listening to an event which, while it took place on the 26th of June 2021, still resonates and is still obviously very relevant today, unfortunately. Um, in the event, black and Palestinian poets came together for a special evening of poetry. The event was rebroadcasted by Salam Radio, which you can catch every Sunday from 4pm to 6pm on 3CR. We're now going to go to some announcements. <laughs> What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. 
The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Sonia on Wednesday breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. You can also hear us on podcast after this. You can hear us over the webs in all sorts of forms and through the community radio app as well. The next program that we're going to um, be listening to was broadcast originally even earlier than the last piece on May the 20th, double-checking that, yep. Um, It's a program dedicated to the eclectic work of poetry and performance, again. Um, And we'll be listening to some Palestinian writers and editors who share some of their new work, obviously new in 2021, reflecting on the resistance and resilience of the Palestinian people through generations of colonial violence and oppression, reminding us once again that the events that are happening right now in Gaza did not start on the 7th of October. You can listen to Spoken Word, which is where this broadcast comes from, every Thursday from 9am till 9.30am. Hi everyone, I'm Lejane Hurani, a Palestinian writer and editor. I work mainly with nonfiction and poetry, mainly by blending them together. Both of my grandparents are from the Galilee, but they met at Nadab refugee camp in Aleppo, in Syria. They were both forcibly removed from their respective hometowns in 1948. Tershiha, my grandmother's hometown, is now a part of occupied Palestine, and Hattin, my granddad's hometown, has been demolished. I'm recording from Wurundjeri country in the Kulin Nation, where I'm a benefactor of the same settler colonial system that demands my displacement. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, and this is the Spoken Word Program.
1917, the British government signed the Balfour Declaration, announcing Palestine as a national home for the Jewish people, and setting into motion the genocide and ethnic cleansing of Palestine's indigenous population. The genocide and ethnic cleansing that continues to this day. And that same year, 1917, British foresters in Palestine wanted to change the so-called barren landscape that they saw on their arrival to Palestine. So the British colonists of the Commonwealth of Australia planted eucalyptus trees on our land, a tree not native to Palestine, a tree that demarcated where the Palestinian villages were located. And decades later, when the Israeli Offense Force wanted to conduct airstrikes, they didn't need to know where the Palestinian villages were on the map. They just had to look out for the eucalypts. The Australian colony is not just complicit in the colonization of Palestine. It is an active perpetrator both today and a century ago. The fight for Palestinian sovereignty is the same fight for indigenous sovereignty here on the Australian colony. You cannot care for one without caring for the other. Thank you to all our First Nations allies who have been fighting with us from the beginning. I have written and rewritten the transcript for today many times, and before writing it, there was an intense incubation period of me sitting and thinking of how to take up this half hour. Honestly, the Australian literary scene has been hostile to Palestinian narratives up until this point, and at first I felt very flustered with what to do with all the platforms were finally being given. It's bittersweet having our colonization finally acknowledged, because the catalyst was yet another genocide. And when things settle, if they settle, I don't want that to be the end of your allyship. I'm going to read a poem of mine titled Chain Link Fence. Two years I mapped our migration. I only went so far back. Me, my dad, his dad, and his dad. Four generations in a repeated pattern. This many kilometers then another number, then the first number again, then the second. A call and response like one person was saying, hey, and the next said, hey back. When I sandwalk barefoot, the dunes swell into the arch of my souls. When my grandmother died, I walked six kilometers in the rain. My shoes had no grip. I watched a leaf drip like faucet, a magpie that looked lost. Hey, I am the hey back. My dad's dad was born in Hattin, in Palestine. He moved to Jish when he was three, but still, he said, I am from Hattin. And my dad says, my dad was from Hattin. And I say, my grandfather was from Hattin. And when I returned, all that was left of Hattin was a mosque turned mostly to rubble, a tomb that had been refurbished, the rest paved over, repeated pattern of brick ending when it reached the slip brick pattern like headstones, and then three corner shops, all in a row, blue light, it was nighttime. Brick pattern to repopulate, brick pattern for the thousand bodies. And my dad, happy, looking straight into the phone flash, arms wide, white teeth, saying, hey, get a load of this, watched by the guard who let us in.
You're listening to the Spoken Word program, and that was Joanne Safadi's Kinnit Biddiakun. I'm Lujain Hurani. I was in Sydney two weeks ago for the Writers' Festival, where I met with Evelyn R. Lewin, my friend and mentor. Evelyn was born and raised on Darug country and is a descendant of the Bundjalung Nation. She is a poet, researcher, and co-editor of Overland, and she is incredible. Together, the two of us went through my manuscript and section by section interrogated what I was doing from a formal and linguistic perspective. Evelyn mentioned that my work actively dismantles the language movement, and I told her, I didn't know that. I don't read poetic theory, I just write poetry. It's cliché to say that Palestinians are born poets, but we are. The cliché exists because we keep saying it. And we keep saying it because it's true. It's been proven time and time again. We have such a great legacy with people like Ghassan Kanafani, Mahmoud Arwish, Murid Barghouti. I think it's funny that I wrote my whole manuscript without knowing all the things I was doing. And this week, now that journals finally want to hear from us, 
I have written four new poems for publication, and still I don't know what poetic theory I'm employing or dismantling. I'm just writing poetry. A few months ago, Hala Alian published a piece in The New Yorker titled Spoiler. She's a Palestinian-American poet, but Spoiler is not about Palestine, and she doesn't mention Palestine by name. My housemate came into my room that day and said, have you read this poem? It reminds me of your work. And Hala Alian's language is different to mine, and so is her structure. But there's something about Palestinian poets. We grow up so conscious of language, so it's say this, don't say that, careful with this word and this metaphor, etc., etc. And so we have within us a shared tone and a shared vocabulary. That's what I mean when I say Palestinians are born poets. This is a piece I wrote over the last week. It might change between now and publication, but for now it is titled, I am writing in vignettes because all we have are fragments. It rains on Eid al-Fitr. My family spends four hours in my living room Without the heater on, we do not talk, we scroll and read, and listen and scroll and sit, and scroll and post and watch, my phone dies before dinner. My friend DMs me, have you seen that video of Toni Morrison, where she talks about how, no matter how bad things got, she always knew that she was morally superior to the racists in the world. In 2006, Mr. Hernshack organized a fundraiser for Gaza. I was in year eight. And proud and smug and excited that for a few days things were about us. I'm writing in vignettes because all we have are fragments. On Monday, Israeli forces fire on Palestinians at Al-Aqsa. On Tuesday, I stay home from work. On Wednesday, we wake up to Israel bombs Gaza. On Thursday, I see a video of Israeli cops and lynch mobs breaking into a house in Haifa, the owners ramming back the door. If a screech had a body, it would vibrate like that. The camera is shaking. Someone has retweeted it with, this is Nakba. This is what happened to my family in 1948. Now we have footage. I am writing in vignettes because it is always about footage. I do not know when this poem will be published, but by then these words will have fossilized. I do not remember my dreams last night, just fragments that return in whips, a ponytail, a clothes hanger, my dad, red plaid shirt, the tail of a prawn, chewing and swallowing. I read fascists among us on the tram to the protest to remind myself, racists do have morals, they're just not good ones. Last year we went viral, normalization, and in 2019, annexation, and in 2018, the right of return. It does not matter when this poem is published, these fragments always fossilize, only to get dug up a year later. It storms the night before the protest, and the latch on my bedroom window has not been repaired. I lie on my back and think of the rain, and wind and hail teeming up to explode the brittle seams of plastic. I wrote that poem on Eid al-Fitr. My family sat in the living room, and I went into my bedroom and closed the door, and an hour later the first draft was done. It was an easy poem to write because I was writing about pattern. It's something I've been through on repeat my whole life. We go viral and then it dies down, and then we go viral and then it dies down, over and over and over again. Yes, this was the first time I put pen to paper, but the words aren't new, and the feelings aren't new. And if you came to the rally last week, and if you didn't, I'd love to see you at the next one. 
In year one, I was invited to a classmate's birthday party at McDonald's, and I told my dad, I don't want to go. And my dad said, Lulu, why? Are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'd rather be at home with you guys. And anyway, I don't like that guy very much, and I don't want to get him a present. This is the earliest lie I remember telling. I didn't want to go to the party because I'd found out that McDonald's gives money to Israel. I wanted to boycott, but was too embarrassed to say so. And in my teens, I didn't drink Coca-Cola, and I didn't go to Starbucks, and I didn't shop at Marks and Spencer's or eat Ben and Jerry's. And today, I don't use Uber or Grindr or book with Airbnb or shop Puma or L'Oreal or HP. All of these organizations, and so, so many more, contribute to the occupation of Palestine in one way or another. Some of the businesses are located in illegal settlements, and some of them provide infrastructure to the Israeli Defense Force. The apps I mentioned censor Palestinian narratives, and they delete or disable your account if you post pro-Palestine sentiment. This fight is not new to me. It started before I even had the confidence to mention it by name. My manuscript is about suffocation, about how the Israeli state is suffocating Palestinians, and about how the only way that we can suffocate back is through BDS, which stands for Boycotts, Divestments and Sanctions. The BDS movement was born in 2005, and its aim is to end the international support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure the Israeli state to comply with international law. The BDS movement has three main demands. One, ending the occupation and colonization of all Palestinian land. Two, recognizing the fundamental rights of the Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality. And three, respecting, protecting, and promoting the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes. رجال في قزمان رواية ناس تريق ذياع خوف كتاب حروف وذباب وبلاوي تزيد في العين رمات سواد الليل كسوف الناس ذي عجال Sad. 
سواد الليل كسوف الناس ذي عجل محاين كاس بواب الذيخ لوجو تبان ذي عجل تريق الباس That was Noor Harakati's Tariq Diyar. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, and this is the Spoken Word Program. The next and final poem I'll be reading today is an excerpt from my manuscript. Five months old and in flight. Five months old by a window that doesn't open because it's been engineered not to. High altitude makes my throat blister and then crunch, swallow, crunch. Born flying and landing and flying again. Dizzy and trying to find the nearest chemist between a flight and a train ride. A chemist to soothe the bile pushing against my throat. My throat that is boarded shut and popping. Cutting off its air supply is not murder because you're almost dead. Cutting off its air supply is not murder because the thing shouldn't exist. Strangle, strangle, strangle. No, that's not the right word. Maybe the word I'm thinking of is suffocate. No, maybe that's not it either. I just want to cut off its circulation until it says, give me back my oxygen. And I will say, no. Nothing ever really stops existing, even if you kill it. This is a good thing, because we do not want to die. Nothing ever really stops existing, even if you kill it. This is a bad thing, because burning a flag is not enough. Nothing ever really stops existing, so why bother killing it? Those spiky little balls in mountain grass, whose names I do not know, and I will never know, because I will never look it up, because it is not my secret and I am not nosy. Stuck to the cuff of my jeans, following me all the way to the harbor, stuck to the sleeve of my pink jacket, pulling something up almost all the way. A pillar holds something up, until it falls. A pillar holds something up, is five of them overdoing it? No. 
A pillar holds something up, but what makes a pillar a pillar? A rock. Rubble makes a thing holy because you go to a place and say this was worth fighting over and you are not half wrong. Two rocks side by side. Eventually, the rubble stops counting for all that much because green grows thick through and over and you can start lying. We're rebuilding. A handful of rocks laid flat. Jenna, meaning heaven. Heaven is full of flowers, the universe is a garden. A pile of rocks. Jnaina, meaning garden. Named as such because you're pretty close to heaven but not quite there yet. A mound of rocks. Janin, as in the city. It's full of farmland and if you are from there, your world is a garden. One more rock right on top. If it stays put, a mountain. If it topples over, a dismantling. What warrants a war? Beauty. My dad said this. When I am in the back seat of a black minivan, I spend three hours saying, I don't get it. And when I go to Janine, I say, I still don't get it. I reach the refugee camp and I say, you're not doing a very good job at explaining it to me. And then my sister shows me a video she took somewhere along the drive. And it's several minutes long. And because the car was moving so fast, it's just a horizontal blur of green. And I say, where was I when this was happening? But not out loud. Nothing ever really stops existing. This means that nothing ever really stops happening. This means that even when you are not in the right place at the right time, you'll still be there. You are always there. If you are afraid that the last rock will ruin everything, it already has. Empty, meaning something is not occupied. This is what Merriam-Webster says, but the more time I spend with words, the more I realize that they do not mean anything at all. A rock is not a rock until it's thrown. I came to Australia as a stateless person in 1997. I inherited statelessness from my dad. We are Australian citizens now, and it's only because we are Australian citizens that we were able to return to Palestine. We went back in 2018 as tourists and only stayed for 10 days. We didn't enter without difficulty. We were held at the border for over six hours and we were interrogated. I want to go back to a free Palestine, and we've never been this close. Thank you for listening to me speak today. I want you to keep listening to Palestinians and showing up for us and defending us in circles that we don't have access to.
فلسطين إلا بسفياب الجدود مثلك ما في إنسان بالحق لي حدود بحلف إلك برواح كل اللي استشهدوه عم حقت الأوطان لا منخون That was Spoken Word, originally broadcast on the 20th of May, 2021. And Spoken Word is broadcast every Thursday here on 3CR, 855 AM, from 9 AM till 9.30. In just a second, we're going to speak with Associate Professor Nicole Carms. From the, she's a founding director of Monash's XYX Lab. But first, we're going to have a song called Anadami Falestini by Mohammed Asaf. Um, and that means my blood is Palestinian. Um, uh, Mohammed Asaf was the winner of the second um, Arab Idol Prize. Um, so let's have a listen to that song now. على ديني على أرض تلاقيني أنا نهلي أنا فديهم أنا دم فلسطيني 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 أنا دم فلسطيني
I don't know about you out there, but we were dancing to that in the studio here. That was Anadami Palestini by Palestinian singer Mohammed Asaf, and that's from 2010. We're now going to go to an interview with um, Associate Professor at Monash University, Nicole Kams. She's a founding director of the XYX Lab. Um, and has recently been doing a survey, published the results of a survey um, on safety in public spaces for women and gender diverse people. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Good morning, Sonia. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Now, tell me, it says that um, the XYX Lab is about gender, place, art and architecture. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So, as you say, we're based at Monash University and we're a group of researchers predominantly with backgrounds in architecture and urbanism and design. And our commitment is to really think about how gender and public space impact each other and the kind of reciprocal relationship between them. And so we work with communities to think about, in this particular case, in the project we're going to talk about this morning, about how we can make women and gender diverse people feel safer and more included in the environments that they're moving through. Great. So tell me a little bit about what the study was and how it was conducted. So Your Ground has now run in Victoria and um, at the moment it's running in New South Wales. And it's a research project that's essentially an interactive map. So you jump online in a web browser through your smartphone or computer and you women and gender diverse people can contribute their experiences anonymously about where they're feeling safe or unsafe in public space. And what we do with this data is we create insights that can really tell governments and local communities about how cities can be improved to make them safer uh, and, as I say, to make women feel more included and to create equitable places. So when was the project in Victoria done? So we launched that project during the pandemic, in the thick of the pandemic in 2020, uh, and we were, and we still are kind of talking about the project. Um, even today, I, I'm still making presentations and working with communities about the work. And late last year, we launched the project in New South Wales. So it kind of runs for a particular amount of time and has phases where there's really active engagement. And then we kind of write the reports and deliver that. And then the next kind of phases of work begin. And what has been the community response like? Look, 
We, um, it won't surprise many people to know that women really want to share their stories about public spaces. I think one of the things that we're increasingly aware of when we're thinking about our cities and towns and communities is that there is a real inequity about how we think about what we might prioritise. Uh, and how we consider where we might spend money and who that money should be spent on. So one of the things that's really popular um, in media to talk about is the amount of money that might get spent on sport and recreation facilities and also that recent conversation around how women might be minoritised as a result of that. And so really trying to understand what is a kind of way of approaching this where women and particularly girls as well, have equal access to those kinds of facilities. But all of these things become part of the, the research story, if you like. And were there any community stories that really stood out to you or any um, ideas that came forth from the research that you've been doing and the surveys that you've done? Look, when we did the work in Victoria, and so that work is, that, that survey is finished, the one in New South Wales is still going, but, you know, for this Victorian audience, Um, It was during COVID, but nonetheless, I think that there was a lot of um, feedback around parks and lighting in parks, Mm -hmm. and we have seen that play out. So now we are currently Royal Park is undergoing a, uh, not a renovation, but a a kind of, it's being, a strategy is being redeveloped for that project. And also places like the Mary Creek, you know, that's a significant project that we've been working with um, the Mary Beck community on for a number of years. And that's also something that's seeing significant investment in terms of women and girls. One of the really interesting things that came out of the Your Ground report, which we didn't expect to find at all, but we found ourselves kind of talking about, is just the amount of women that buy dogs so that they can exercise um, in the early morning and after dark. So, um, you know, there, there are things that women and gender diverse people are making workarounds all the time to navigate through public spaces, whether it's using, you know, spending money on Ubers and taxis and purchasing their first car and not taking a job that's late at night. You know, there's lots of things that are really important that come out of the work that we do. As an early morning dog walker myself, I can relate to that. Um, so you mentioned a bit about the changes to um, Royal Park and Marybeck. What um, other policy initiatives have come out as a result of the research that you did here in Victoria? Well, I think it's actually a bit back, back the other way. Um, in 2020, the uh, Victorian state government um, legislated the Gender Equality Act. And so that was actually a really important moment for all of the communities and local government organisations in Victoria because it actually, for want of a better word, mandates communities to think very carefully about gender equity. And so at the moment there's a whole regime and system to acquit how they might audit public spaces as well as their organisations. But they're accountable for thinking about gender. And this is a really great thing because it means that People are talking about these issues um, in local government. They're also really beginning to understand, and this is kind of core to the work that my research lab does, how to work with women and gender diverse people. So as a result of the Your Ground project in Victoria, we went on to then partner with three local councils, so Melton, Wyndham and um, Moreland, uh, Mel- Melton, Monash and Wyndham, and we did a whole range of co-design activities with those women in those communities to really think very specifically about what was happening in their local areas. And so this really kind of has snowballed this legislation to really make us start to think very carefully and invest in women and gender diverse people.
Could you talk a bit about what that, what those um, consultations, what the, those discussions looked like? Because it might interest our listeners and help them to talk to their local councils about getting them implemented elsewhere. Absolutely. So the, this particular project, it was called Safe Spaces and it was funded by the Department of Justice and Community Services and it was in partnership with an organisation called Welcoming Cities. And um, it was about identifying women's awareness of the problems in public spaces and it was specifically working with migrant women in these communities. So as you can imagine, when we do this research, there's lots of uptake from generally people in the centre of cities. And so working with these outer suburbs was really critical. But also we have a real remit around making sure that we work with women from diverse backgrounds. And so this project really leveraged some of that. Um, important foundational work. So we wanted to understand their experience and so they were core to the research. They were involved in every single stage of the research. Um, We did really interesting work um, and this was in collaboration with a whole team of researchers but we did what we would describe as walking surveys which is where you literally interview women as you walk through their communities to talk about issues of safety. A really important tool that we then created toolkits about. So so could I... Sorry, that sounds really interesting, and I'd just like to yep. delve deeper into that a bit. Um, so basically you had a, like a clipboard or a phone or something like that, and you literally were walking the streets with these women, filling out where they feel safe and where they don't? Is that the idea, or have I misread yep, that, that? that? No, you totally got it. So it's a kind of form of auditing mm-hmm. where you're asking her to direct a conversation and to talk about her experiences in the public spaces that she's moving through on a day-to-day basis and it's led by the women Mm. Um, and yeah it it is literally you know um, iPad or clipboard and really thinking and listening to what those experiences might be Um, and we did that with there are about 80 women who were involved in the kind of co-design process but it's very time intensive as you can imagine. Yes I was just thinking that. But what really emerged from those very detailed one-to-one interviews was things about racism, about nighttime experiences, mm-hmm. um, about harassment and assault, um, about isolation. And these things were emergent themes that then became part of the larger research project. But, yeah, the walking interview was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the outputs was, of that research was a toolkit that showed other communities across Victoria and indeed anywhere, the publicly available document, how to actually undertake a walking interview and how to do that particular process with women in their community. And is that available, just quickly, is that available online and could um, listeners have a look at that and do something yep. similar in there? Um, we could send you a link and you can we'll put it on We'll put that your... up on our show notes. Yes, That would be great. Um, now, you... Um, mentioned the impact of the Gender Equality Act. Is there similar legislation in New South Wales and is that having a similar impact or can we see differences as a result of the lack of that sort of legislation? So uh, uh, my understanding, New South Wales have a slightly different approach. What they do have is a women's um, commissioner. So the work that we're doing up there is being has been commissioned by a woman called Dr Hannah Tonkin and she's a Women's Safety Commissioner, but they also have what's called a Women's Safety Charter, which again is, a, is um, we think, kind of comparable to the Gender Equality Act here, where it's really starting to make communities think about how they're dealing with gender in public spaces. So I think what, what this tells us is the absolute momentum that's happened around these issues. 
um, you know, related to women and girls in public spaces and gender diverse people in public spaces, and the the commitment by governments to think about this issue. And one of the things I find myself kind of saying around whether it's New South Wales government, Victorian government, Murraybeck, City of Melbourne, these aren't happy stories that we're finding when we do this work. And it really takes a great deal of commitment to want to change it because it's not a terrific public-facing message, you know, to have to be dealing with women's sense of feeling unsafe in public spaces. So we really need to... Um, give credit to the communities that are tackling this and aren't standing back from the issue. And so I think we're seeing that with, you know, the work that we're doing in New South Wales, but also with some of the communities that are now taking up these really um, important concerns here in Victoria. And could you just run through some of the things that you found in terms of the facts and figures um, of how safe women and gender diverse people do feel um, in public spaces? Yeah, I might do that kind of generally so that um, it's it's relevant. Basically, what we find in the research that we do, so when our, as I mentioned, this map that we make allows women and gender diverse people to plot where they feel safe and where they feel unsafe. And what we find is around three quarters of the pins that get dropped onto this map are about feeling unsafe. Okay. Now, that's to be expected because generally people... Um, will want to share kind of their yeah. concerns. And so that's, that's pretty standard. About half of the unsafe pins are about nighttime experiences. And again, that doesn't really surprise us, but it's really important to understand that after dark is a really concerning time for women and gender diverse people. And it's not just that, because what the result of feeling unsafe after dark is, is that, as I say, we might not take particular jobs, we might not attend particular university classes, it might change our relationship to the way we're allowed to engage in recreational life. So these have flow-on effects that are really important for us to recognise. We also um, are able to see a couple of really interesting concerns that relate directly to my disciplinary area around urban design. So what we know is the major concerns that um, women and gender diverse people have is about the maintenance of public space. So if things are looking crappy, if the landscaping is not tended to, if there's rubbish or um, uh, uh, there's a, um, you know, evidence of people using drugs or using alcohol, these things really can make women and gender diverse people feel unsafe. So the maintenance of public space is critical. We also know that things like visibility, being able to see ahead, wayfinding, being able to know how long is it to the, the train station, how far is it going to be, where, you know, how long is it going to take me to get there, can I understand how I can move out of this space if things get tricky, um, is there provision of a well-maintained and safe path, all of these things, which seem kind of minor, these are really, really critical to women and gender diverse people's experiences of just feeling safe. So... Um, then we start to kind of delve into some interesting things which perhaps contradict what uh, local communities are doing. So the kind of fallback position for issues of safety is to chuck in a whole lot of CCTV and heaps of bright lighting. And time and again, our research reiterates that this is not what makes women and gender diverse people feel safer. So the CCTV just makes them feel as though there's something to be concerned about and that they're going to find themselves, a, you know, a picture on the news that evening. So that's not a, that's not a, you know, that's a forensic tool. It's not a kind of safety initiative. Mm -hmm. um, and same with bright lighting. They're this kind of overlit public spaces 
forget what it does to wildlife and, you know, all of those kind of important um, things about kind of overlighting spaces. Yeah. It actually just makes women feel like they're really in a, um, you know, on show. So we need designers who are really expert in designing urban lighting. And we've been working with some people at Arup um, in their amazing lighting teams who really understand this issue. So these are the things that come up no matter what city we're working in, time and again. That's re- that sounds great, um, and yeah, not always intuitive. And um, could you tell me any next steps that are being taken from where you are today? Yeah, so I guess the thing that we're interested in now is to use this tool as a repeat way to kind of order public spaces. So earlier I said that we did the Your Ground Victoria in 2020. The aim is to see the work unfold with local communities. So things like what's been happening in Melton, um, in Marybeck, um, with the City of Melbourne, see how the data gets used by communities and then to redo the survey again so that we can see about shifts and start to track the kind of post um, occurrences of the the research work. Um, And also at the time in Victoria, I think we, we had 23 councils. There's I think around 77 councils in Victoria. We had 23 councils partner on that research. And since that time, even though we invited every single council to be part of the project, some didn't, and now they want to be part of it. So the idea of running it again means that the councils that perhaps didn't participate in that first iteration can now kind of benefit maybe a bit more directly um, when we run it again. So it is a tool that is supposed to be iterative and start to capture change. Um, So that would be a core kind of outcome. And is there anything that our listeners could do to either find out more or to participate in this right now, given that we are in Victoria where you say the survey is closed for now? Yeah, so um, I think what would be good, so it's only the New South Wales one that's open, but there's an archive map of the Victorian one. So I think um, we can put some links on your show to the the report. So the report is a publicly available document. So you can have a look at what came out of the research in Victoria. Um, And you can also have a look at the archive map and see what some of the information was around your local communities and the areas that you're moving through. Um, and, I mean, I think, you know, follow the XYX lab and look at the research that we're doing. Absolutely, as you mentioned, get engaged with your um, local community and find out what they're doing. If you can participate as a co-designer in public spaces um, and be a consultant and, you know, sh- express your concerns and interest in how public space is shaped. Great. Um, is there any final thing that you'd like to add? Just thank you for, you know, uh, being able to talk about the project. It's really important for us to share it with communities. Great. Thank you very much. That was Nicole Carms, an Associate Professor at Monash University and Founding Director of the XYX, excuse me, XYX Lab, um, who was talking to us this morning. Um, That brings our show for today to an end. Um, We have had um, quite a bit on today. First off, we were, um, you listen to me, talking about um, uh, the religious aspects and the role of religious leaders um, in the genocide in Palestine. Um, we then went to segments from Salam Radio and from Spoken Word, which are both 3CR productions that you can listen to on Thursdays or on Sundays, respectively, um, both talking about poetry and Palestine. Um, 
we will be going to um, the Stick Together show after this, um, starting at 8.30. But thank you very much for your time this morning, and I hope you have a lovely day. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.